Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. I love seeing that video, all those old family pictures. That's all stock footage. It's nobody from our church family, but it makes you remember your old family videos, doesn't it? There's a video of me sitting at the back of my Sunday school classroom, Christmas time. We're about to do the Christmas pageant. I told you my line from the Christmas pageant last week. And I'm sitting at the back of the Sunday school room, facing the back wall, while all the other kids are facing the teacher at the front. I don't know if I was in trouble or if I was just that socially awkward. Probably the latter. But... Um, uh, I want to thank Steve for his words there. That's high praise, and I don't really know how to take it. Uh, but it's huge to be able to follow a pastor and leader in the church who believes in you that much. Yeah. And I would just say, in our weakness, he is strong. His grace is sufficient. Did you get a chance to discuss the content last Sunday's sermon with your family? Because that's where the rubber really meets the road. Chatting through these things with our family, with our loved ones, with our friends. Here's a question based on last week's sermon time. Do you have a set of values for your family? Maybe you've got them posted on a wall. Maybe you've got a little craft picture that you picked up at a craft sale or, or um, Christmas tree shops down in the States, maybe something like that. And it hangs on your wall and it talks about your family rules or your family values. Do you have one at home? Anybody have one at home? I want to show you a few. I, I snagged a few here. Uh, I don't know if you can read that from the back, but house rules. You've seen things like this, right? If you open it, close it, Turn it on, turn it off, unlock it, lock it up, break it, fix it. And then look at the last one. If you don't know how to use it, leave it alone. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> here's, here's another one. Family rules. Help each other. Be thankful. Know you are loved. Pay with hugs and kisses. Try new things. Be happy. Show compassion. Be grateful. Dream big. Respect one another. Laugh out loud. Those are all nice things, right? It's just kind of nice to see that on the wall, read through it. But... But the idea is, like, how much do we actually value this stuff? Is it just like a crafty picture on our wall that we kind of smile as we walk by? Or do we actually have a set of family values that we live by? Uh, this next one here. This is one that hangs in my aunt and uncle's dining room. It's right at the head of their table. And I've actually heard them reference it a few times. I like this one. Family rules. Love God. Family first. Work hard. Tell the truth. Be kind. Do you have an image like that on your wall at home? And then there's some kind of humorous, kind of cringy ones out there, aren't there? Like this one. Dysfunctional family rules. Be loud. Chew with your mouth open. Jump on the bed. Slam doors. Embarrass each other in public. I like that one. That was a family value in my household, especially for my mother growing up. Be impatient. Use your outside voice inside. Make a mess, stay up late, eat dessert first, make excuses, have food fights, pout and whine, leave the dishes, watch too much TV, throw a fit, disregard good advice, blame the dog. We put the fun in dysfunction. 
Anybody got a sign like that? Maybe it doesn't hang on your wall, but maybe it's how your family functions. I don't know. Don't need a sign. Don't need a sign. Just come and watch. Here's the last one. This house runs on love, laughter, and inappropriate humor. Maybe that's family value of yours. I don't know. Um, okay. Do you remember two years ago, uh, we went a little overboard for Mother's Day and Father's Day. Steve was away on sabbatical, so we thought, let's do it up big. Let's do everything. So we did all kinds of stuff. Not as much for Mother's Day because we, we have a few males on staff and they tend to be more creative when it comes to Father's Day and not necessarily Mother's Day. So Father's Day, we had the Jeep parked out there and the motorcycle in the lobby and a pop for your pop and we had a campfire scene set up on stage. Do you remember that? So on Mother's Day, we had a panel of four mothers up on stage. On Father's Day, we had four fathers up on stage sitting around the campfire in their camp chairs. And we asked them a number of questions, and they talked about what it was like parenting, what it was like being a mom, what it was like being a dad, to celebrate and to honor mothers and fathers on Mother's Day and Father's Day. And the last question in each of those panel discussions was, what's the one thing that you want for your child or for your family more than anything else? What's the one thing? And across the board, the answer was Jesus in one form or another. Maybe it was salvation. Maybe it was that they'd walk with the Lord. Maybe it was that they would have a personal faith. But it all pointed back to Jesus. That's the one thing we want for our kids more than anything else. More than a good job, more than a great education, more than all their hopes and dreams in life in this world. We want our kids to know and love and serve Jesus. That was the number one thing that came out of that panel discussion. And I'm assuming if you're here this morning and you claim the name of Jesus and you're seeking to follow him, that's what you want more than anything for your family, is Jesus. Can we lay the groundwork for this sermon right there? The one thing we want more than anything else for our family is Jesus. Last week we said, we read the scripture where Jesus said, do you love me more than anything, more than family, more than your father, more than your mother, more than your children, more than your parents? Do you love me most? That's what we want for our family. So the question is, and the question that I want to seek to answer from scripture this morning is, how do we as families facilitate that desire? What are the metrics what are the measurables? How do we know if we're on the right path? Do you ever ask yourself that as a parent? Probably at least 100 times a day, banging your head against the wall maybe. How do we know that we're on the right track? What do we focus on? Teaching? Relating? Actively doing? If we just talk about Jesus enough in our homes, will that translate by osmosis or whatever into the life of our kids for the rest of their days? Is that, is that what it takes? Believe it or not, the local church has the same mission as you should have for your family. To be disciples who make disciples. To be people who actively love and serve and follow Jesus, encouraging other people to actively love and serve and follow Jesus. That's our mission as a local church, to be disciples who make disciples. And that will always be our mission as the local church because it is the mission that Jesus has for his church. And we accomplish this through three core values that Jesus outlined for his church, and that's what we're going to look at. Truth, community, and engagement. 
So what is the role of church and what is the role of family in instilling these values? They say it takes a village to raise a child, right? Does that mean it takes a church to make a disciple? Do you need to be plugged into a local church so that your family can become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? This is the tension we want to dig into today. I think about the language around our child dedications, and maybe you've been here long enough to be able to observe one or two of them. We have Pastor Alex up on stage, youth and family pastor, and then we invite the families to come up on stage, and they've written a little prayer for their kids. They bring their kids up. And then at one point in that child dedication, which is for the parents desiring to raise their children in the Lord, Pastor Alex will say, is it your desire to raise your child in the teaching and the admonition and the instruction of the Lord? If so, answer, we do. And then he turns to the church family. Do you remember this? Church family, stand up. Is it your desire to partner with these parents, to support them, to encourage them, to be alongside them, to share this journey in helping them raise their kids in the teaching and the admonition and the instruction of the Lord? If so, answer, we do. And we answer, we do. What does that mean? Well, it means we are to be disciples who make disciples in the context of parents seeking to raise their children. Maybe you've been here long enough to be at a baptism service. You've seen a young person down in the river, in the water with us, with their family, with those who led them to the Lord, baptizing them. And we ask the question, is it your desire from this day forward to live the rest of your life, to make Jesus the Lord of your life, to follow him all of your days as he enables you to do so? Is it your desire to live for Jesus? Yes. And then, by implication of your presence there as the local church, baptism being an ordinance of the local church, where we have the local church together to support and encourage and witness and to be there to see that public profession of faith, that's what baptism is, by implication of your presence there, you are agreeing to do the same for this young individual being baptized. That means we are being disciples who make disciples. That's what the church is all about. So if that's our goal, it needs to be measurable. Just like you stand your kids up in the doorway to the dining room and you mark their heights on the doorframe, the house we moved into still has all the heights of the previous children who lived there before us, which I think is cool. I look at that once in a while and I think, should I take that down and like figure out where they live and send it to them? It's probably some sentimental value there. It's just like when you take your kids to the doctor's appointment and they show you the chart on the screen. Like our family doctor back in New Brunswick showed Reese's chart on the screen. He's got a Fillmore head, so his head was in the 85th or 90th percentile, his whole development stage. His weight was in the 80th percentile. His height was in the 80th percentile. And they have all these metrics and measurables to show you, is your child developing physically the way they should be developing? Then you go to parent-teacher night at school, and your teacher shows, your student's teacher shows you their grades. Here's how they're leveling out. Here's how they're comparing. Here's the CAT testing or whatever that shows where they line up academically, educationally, and we have these metrics. Do we have metrics for discipleship? Do we have metrics for spiritual growth and development? If we really value... If our biggest value for our family is that they would learn to follow 
and be fully devoted to Jesus Christ, then how do we measure that? What's the aim? What are the goals? What are the metrics? What are the stats that we're aiming for? We need to be able to measure their discipleship so that we can value their discipleship. So the three values that I'm going to give you, I hope hope you understand. I was talking to my life group this Thursday night and I said, I felt like going into last Sunday talking about this tension between church and family and when it comes to time and resources and energy, I felt like people assume that we want just a, uh, a template. Pastor Josh, just give me a template that I can insert over my schedule, that I can insert over my budget, that I can insert over my daily routine that tells me how much time, how much money, how much energy I'm supposed to be giving to the church. But there is no template. There is no one-size-fits-all template. Because there are people in this church who serve a whole lot. And there are people in this church who are not engaged in serving yet. And there are different personalities, there are different gifts, there are different life stages, different energy levels. There are people who live far away from the church facility. There are people who live close by. There's all sorts of factors. One size doesn't fit all. So what you need is not 10 steps to help your family follow Jesus. What you need are some aims and goals when it comes to values of discipleship. So that's what I want to give you from scripture this morning. And the values are these, truth, community, and engagement. So let's dig into truth. Value number one, truth is a mark of discipleship according to Jesus in John chapter 8. If you want to turn to John chapter 8. Jesus is faced with the woman caught in adultery. The religious leaders throw her at Jesus' feet. Jesus is writing in the sand with a stick. You remember that? And they think they've got him. Look, Jesus, here's the truth. Here's the law of Moses. Here's what the law says. What do you say? They're trying to trap him between truth and grace. And Jesus says, here's what I have to say. Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. You remember this story? They're trying to trap him in the truth of the law. And Jesus shows that He is the truth. He is God's word made flesh. He talks about being the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've heard that verse before, right? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus says a mark, a measurable, a metric on the dashboard of discipleship is abiding in his word, knowing the truth. And the truth will set you free. If you trust Jesus' words, you'll find freedom from sin. That also implies you'll find freedom from all of the lies of this world and all of the lies dwelling in your soul. That also implies you'll find freedom from the constant need to be searching for truth. Have you met people who don't know the truth? They're searching, aren't they? They're constantly searching, constantly seeking, or they're dull to it. Doesn't it feel like analysis paralysis all the time? So much information, we're constantly searching for the real truth. Like the weather. You talked about the weather recently? This past week, I've heard multiple people, I don't know why it keeps coming up, talking about the winter that we're going to have. Do you know the winter we're going to have? Well, let me tell you. It's going to be warm and wet 
and you're not going to have to shovel because the climate is getting warmer. We're never going to have to shovel again. But also, yeah, Bernadette, okay, sounds good. But also, El Nino is coming in this season, which is going to force more weather our directions. We're going to get stronger nor nor'easters, and we're going to have more snow. So you better prepare for the warm and wet and the more snow. But the Farmer's Almanac also says lots of snow, but the beehives are sitting low, which means there's not going to be a lot of snow. But the pine cones are sitting high, which means there is going to be a lot of snow. So really what you've got to prepare for is an Atlantic Canadian winter. I don't think anybody knows the kind of winter we're going to have until we actually experience that. Isn't that kind of like every topic that we discuss? Somebody throws in, well, I heard this. And somebody else, no, no, I heard this. What's gas going to do on Thursday? Oh, it's going to go through the roof. Oh, actually, it's going to go down four cents. And then it doesn't move on Thursday. And you think, I'm so glad we chatted about all that. What was the truth? We live in an overly informed and terribly confused age. Where do we find truth these days? We Google it, don't we? If we have a question, we're in a conversation, we pull it out. Oh, my... My camera's on. It's taking pictures in my pocket. <laughs> I remember sitting in my life group 10 years ago with the young adults. We were playing a game, and some of them were arguing about the rules, some of the more competitive ones. Not myself. I'm not really competitive when it comes to board games, but... <laughs> pulled out Google and started Googling the rules to the game, and I thought, wow, that's kind of weird. I, I guess we can do that. Yeah, let's look them up. I'd never even thought to do that. Well, now it's just customary, isn't it? We whip out our phone, we bring up Google, and we search a billion answers in a few seconds, are right at our fingertips. Do you know that every second, there are 40,000 people asking Google a question? Every second of every day, the average is 40,000 queries to Google. Do you know that the average question asked to Google travels 1,500 miles to a data center and back with your answer? Did you know that based on those numbers, the amount of questions that get asked on a daily basis to Google represent half of the world's population? So where are people going with their questions? They're going to Google. Where else do people go with their questions? Social media. Don't they? Have you ever uh, asked a recommendation on Facebook? I've never used that feature, but I, I see people using it. It looks helpful at times. You go to chat groups, you go to support groups, you go on Discord or something like that. You go on Reddit to answer some questions on social media. Back in 2012, the average person spent 1.5 hours scrolling social media. That was 11 years ago. In 2023, we're over two and a half hours daily scrolling through social media. You're going to sit here for 35, 40, maybe 45 minutes for a sermon. And uh, I don't know if you listen to other sermons through the week or if you engage in a life group or how much Bible reading you do, but the average person scans social media two and a half hours a day. And it's lovely to see pictures and updates from friends and family far away, uh, but you and I both know that our eyes are scrolling past clickbait, big bold titles with big scary words to try and grab your attention, advertisements, images that live rent-free in our mind. Kids have multiple voices and opinions in their ears, in their eyes, in their mind at all times, at school, 
on their sports teams, coaches encouraging different values, TV, those YouTube ads that pop up while your kids are watching a children's show and the advertisement is for the new horror movie that's coming out because Halloween is this week and then you're racing for the remote to turn it off because your kids are sitting there watching whatever creature is on the screen, this dark horror movie. Who's speaking truth into your family? I saw this ad come up this week. I think it was on YouTube. And I made a note of it because it's perfect for our discussion today. It said this in a nice, calm, female voice. Disinformation spreads online, causing harm to Canada and Canadians. Learn how to identify and fact-check disinformation. Visit Canada.ca for more information. A message from the government of Canada. I'm not trying to make a political statement on that. I can appreciate that our government is trying to speak to all the fake news and disinformation and misinformation that's out there online that runs rampant. But can the government really help you answer the question, what is truth? And help you discern that deep-seated value that you want your family to live by? How do we embrace truth as Christian families? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We referenced 1 Timothy chapter 3 last week. This week, the reading reminder was 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. They have this bond, this relationship, like a disciple and a discipler, a mentor and a mentee. Somebody who's leading and helping the next generation understand what it is to live for Christ, to be a young leader in the church, to be a witness for God in this world. Really, that's what we're called to do for our children, to prepare them to lead themselves and their families in this world. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching not just my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. Think about all the things that Timothy knew about Paul and observed in Paul's life. His faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me, praise God. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy probably witnessed some of what Paul is referring to here, all of the persecutions that he experienced. Timothy probably witnessed a lot of that firsthand. He knew Paul's apostleship. He knew Paul's teaching. He knew it was legitimate because he rubbed shoulders with Paul. He had a relationship with Paul. He observed his life. He observed his ministry. I love that Paul's ministry wasn't built on flash and excitement and cool sneakers and the latest fashion or catchphrases. It was built through hardships, carrying the cross of Christ to people who would reject his message and reject him, facing that persecution through hard times. It wasn't always easy. And Timothy got to observe these things through Paul's life, purpose in the pain, endurance, focus on the goal. 
Timothy followed all of this, which probably made Paul's words sink a little deeper into Timothy's heart. Verse 13. This is what we're talking about. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The lies are really just getting worse in our society, aren't they? You can see the deception of the evil one. When a generation is being told there's no absolute truth, you can be whatever you want to be. Everyone else ought to affirm it regardless of their own moral values. We need to remember that the people deceiving are being deceived themselves. I appreciated Steve's prayer for the Middle East. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the darkness of this present age. There's a spiritual battle going on. And the ones who are spreading lies and disinformation and trying to deceive you and twist the truth are really pawns in the hands of the evil one. And that calls us to empathy, that calls us to love, that calls us to care, that calls to gospel evangelistic action to free those people with the truth that we just read about in John 8. Verse 14, But as for you, Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned, what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Look at those three phrases. Learned, believed, known. Learned is the Greek term manthano, fact, knowledge. Someone learns from experience, often with the implication of reflection. They come to realize the facts add up. This makes sense. It clicks cognitively. I begin to understand this. And then firmly believed, it's pisto. It comes from the Greek word meaning faith established truth, assured truth, it's trustworthy. I'm convinced, I believe it. It's no longer just facts in my mind, now I believe it. And then knowing, it's the Greek term ido, to know, to remember, to appreciate, to comprehend, to value. I take the facts that I hear, I believe them, and then I internalize them as I appreciate them, comprehend them, and value them. I hear the fact, I believe the fact, and now I live by the fact. I heard the truth, I believe the truth, and now I live by the truth. Do you see the flow there, the progression of truth, how it's received, how it's internalized? Verse 15, and how from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writing. Since he was a kid, he was in the word of God which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing the truth does. It shows us that we are sinners in the hand of a righteous God. And if not for his son, Jesus Christ, we would have no hope, no forgiveness, no redemption, no purpose, no meaning in this life. But because God loved us so much, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross to be the payment for our sin, the redemptive price in his vicarious sacrifice in our place on that cross to pay for our sins so that we could be made right with God and be in good standing with God and be forgiven and be justified and be adopted and be brought into the family of God. That's the first thing the truth of the gospel accomplishes in our life. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Wait a second, we didn't talk about sports. We didn't talk about school. We didn't talk about that, uh, that summer training internship thing that we should have sent our kids to if they're going to be fully developed. No, the word of God is what they need. Our desire is to be people of the book. If not for God's word, we would have nothing to say. I'd be out of a calling. Through God's word, we understand that Jesus paid the redemptive price for us. He's the atoning sacrifice. Through the Bible, we learn the truth that God loves us and sent his son to die for us. But the Bible is also valuable because it all teaches us. The wisdom, the practice, the life lessons, the moral values, the experience, the stories. It's valuable because it reproves us. It corrects us. It is the measure of truth by which we gauge all other truth. When we get off course in our thinking, God's word is what corrects us. Because I can guarantee you, whatever line of thinking you take, there is a pocket of society that will affirm you and encourage you in that line of thinking. But God's truth stands strong in the face of deceit and lies. That's why we need God's word to show us what is righteousness. There are no other perfect examples of righteousness in this world, in our society, in our generation, save God's word. Your family needs God's truth in their lives. If you desire that your family be fully devoted followers of Jesus, then that starts with valuing the truth of God's word. That's where we learn salvation. That's where we learn righteousness. Local church and family, we now have this incredible opportunity to partner and to unite. I hate to break it to you, but you are just one of the many voices in your family's life. You are just one of the employees in your coworker's life. You are just one of the students in your classmate's life. And as kids get older, their parents' voices have to compete against so many other voices pushing their truth. I remember when we lived in New Brunswick, I was trying to be Jesus' hands and feet to our neighbor named Andrew. And when God called us here and we had to move and sell our home, we got down to the final months of our relationship and our connection with our neighbors until it would all be online and we would be in another province, another community. And this thought kept pulsing through my head. Have I done enough, had enough conversations, spoken enough truth, taken enough opportunities for Andrew to understand the gospel when I leave? Come to find out, I was just one of many voices speaking into Andrew's life. And I didn't realize the seed that I was seeking to plant in his life, in his mind, in his heart was the same seed that so many others were seeking to plant in his community, in a church that he was connected to, in a board game club that he went to that a local pastor organized that I had no idea about until I moved away. There are multiple voices speaking into our lives, and we are just one of them. Wouldn't it be great if there was a place, if there was a people, if there was a program designed to facilitate conversations on God's truth? Would that be great? Wouldn't it be great to find a group 
of voices who value the same truth you do from the same book you do, who follow the same God you do, who want the same thing for their kids as you want for your family, for your coworkers, for your classmates, for your neighbors? Wouldn't it be great if that group of people existed and it was within reach, geographically, socially? Wouldn't that be awesome? Local church. Timothy learned to value the truth because he rubbed shoulders with the Apostle Paul. Last week, I listed a dozen people who poured into my life at a young age through the ministry of the local church. Not because my parents didn't know the truth. My dad's a pastor. He still is a pastor to this day. I needed to hear the truth from my local church body. I needed to hear the truth from other voices in my life. I needed to sit in a kid's program where I looked around and saw my peers digging into the Bible. I needed other teachers confirming the truth that my parents were teaching me at home through family devotions and conversations around the table. Timothy had a mother and a grandmother who taught him the scriptures from childhood, but he still needed discipleship in the church from Paul to continue to grow in his knowledge and the understanding of the word, to confirm his calling, to see him supported and set off right in church leadership. He needed the local church for truth. Value number two, community. We've got two more values and not enough time. So we'll see where we make it. John chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet. He tells them that this community of selfless love is another way people know that you are followers of Jesus. The way that you love one another. John chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This isn't something that we force or conjure up. We get to love because he first loved us. We are following Christ's example through the power of the Spirit, through the calling of the Father to show love to one another. Verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is clearly from Jesus, another mark, another metric, another measurable on the dashboard of discipleship to love one another. The love we have between brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in Christ. How you treat one another reflects how Jesus has treated you. The bond of believers points to their bond with their savior. This is why community is a core value of our church. Because Jesus says it is. Why is community important to you and your family? You have family, extended family, probably. You have friends, probably. You have neighbors. You have coworkers. Maybe you have classmates. Maybe you have fellow teammates on the sport that you play. You have semblance of community. You have people that you rub shoulders with at the grocery store, at the gym, at the park. Is that enough? Is that community in the true sense of the biblical term? There's such a broad spectrum on where people find community these days. Elsie and I have this conversation all the time when it comes to our family. Are our kids engaged in community enough? Are they doing enough? 
Should they do more sports and extracurriculars? Should they do less? Should we have them over to friend's house and have their friends over more or, or should we do that less? Are they engaging socially? Are they developing socially? Do they look adults in the eye and answer them with their full voice when an adult engages them in conversation? Are our kids developing socially and building the community and building the relationships that they should at their age? We talk about that all the time. We talk about that around in circles because the problem is it looks totally different today than it did 30 years ago. Because I biked back and forth to elementary school with my friends. And when we got home, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have tablets or computers. Uh, I had a Super Nintendo. But we would say, hey, we're going to meet at the park at such and such a time. And we would put the baseball in the spokes of the bike wheel. And we would put the bat across the handlebars. And then we would put the neighborhood kid on the seat. And then you would pedal your little heart out down to the ball field to play with your friends. Or you'd ask for a loony from mom so that you could go to the public swimming pool in the neighborhood that we had in Riverview and swim with your friends until it was time to get home for supper. And the lifeguard would tell you what time you were supposed to be home for supper. That stuff doesn't happen these days. We don't send kids out and say, hey, when the streetlights come on, you come home for supper. That doesn't happen anymore. It's a different day and age. I don't think we're the only ones asking these questions. Increasingly in society, there's this generational loss of traditional community. There's the impact of the whole online community. You know, there, there used to be a day where you could pick out the teens who were from Truro at the youth event, and you could pick out the teens who were from Halifax at the youth event, based on how they talked, based on how they dressed, based on how they carried themselves. You could tell the difference between those two communities. You can't tell that difference anymore. In fact, teenagers from Truro are looking more and more like teenagers from California. They're wearing the same clothes, the same sneakers, they're using the same lingo, they have the same haircuts, they follow the same sports teams. Young adults and, early, and the generations of today are looking more and more like young adults and teenagers around the world globally than they are like young adults and teenagers in their own local community. And that's one of the impacts of online community. We no longer have a clique, a group, a community of friends right here in our geographical area, now they're spread out all over the world. And that involves lots of other thoughts and ideas and values and truths. Increasingly in society, there's an intergenerational voice being lost. Where do younger generations interact and relate to older generations these days? We've talked about this numerous times. Your kid's teacher might be significantly older. Their coach might be older. But where do, you, where do young people see a variety of generations represented working together on mission with a shared goal? Where does that happen in our society today? The Industrial Revolution meant that dads went off to work. There are less generational farms. There are less father-son businesses. There are less mom-and-pop shops. There are less generational-run businesses. In a generation where we have more technological connection than ever, society is statistically lonelier than ever. So what about the local church? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you would turn there. should have it up on the screen as well. 
verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's talking about the culture, the community of the local church. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Peace is supposed to be a marker of the community of the local church. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That's supposed to happen in the context of the local church. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Where in society do you find groups or programs or people who are patient with those who don't necessarily fit in? Maybe you don't have the proper education or experience on your resume. Oh, sorry, you're not, you're not welcome in here. Oh, that, I don't see that in society these days where a group is open and patient with those who wish to be involved. Verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Where can you practice this in society, save the local church? Where in society do we learn a godly respect for authority? Our world doesn't have a great reason to respect authority. Where do we learn to esteem trustworthy leaders very highly in love? Society teaches us to worship them, follow them, dress like them, cut your hair like them, talk like them. What is society going to tell you about peace? Yet in the local church, we can share this common peace that passes all understanding that we found in our mutual bond in the cross of Christ Jesus. Admonish the idol. Look, if your family is plugged into the local church... You have all of these godly voices encouraging your family toward an active faith. That's too much for you to do on your own. Encourage the faint-hearted. If your family is looking to you for the encouragement they need to pursue faith, what happens when you're the one who's faint-hearted and needs encouragement? Where do you go? Wouldn't it be great if you were plugged into a body of believers that could encourage the faint-hearted, that could admonish the idol. Praise God for his spirit working through the body of believers to bring that encouragement. I can tell you story after story in my own life where I didn't feel like getting up and socializing on a Sunday morning. Maybe you find that hard to believe. But praise God because he sustained that commitment to the local church in my life. I showed up to a church service with my church family and received the encouragement, the working of the spirit, the truth of God's word, and the power of Christ through the local church. Praise God, we need that. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Only in the context of the church does that make sense. Where else are you going to rejoice? Where else are you going to pray? Where else are you going to give thanks? Where else can you find a group of people who are thankful and excited about the same thing? Sports fans, maybe? Together we are asking from the same God who richly provides us with everything we need and together we can experience and express gratitude for all that he's done. Together. Gratitude is a contagious attitude. 
Church should be a body of believers who celebrate and get excited. Yes, for sure, but always pointing the focus back to God in gratitude. There is nothing greater than standing over here during the music time and we're singing about how death is arrested. And that's when my life began. And I get to look around at my church family and think, wow, we're all sharing in this together. We got different backgrounds. We got different stuff in our closet that we've had to turn over to Christ for his forgiveness and his redemption. But we're praising the same name of Jesus together, the answer that we found for our lives that we want to build our families on together. And I stand there with my son and daughter. My son keeps wanting to put his head down on the chair. He's eight years old. We're trying to figure this out. So I lift his head up and I just lean down and said, look around at everybody else singing and participating. And I just said, isn't it cool that we all know this song and we get to sing it together? I hope that stuff penetrates his heart. Okay, value number three. Let's finish this off. Engagement. I had to look to see what it was for a second. I couldn't remember the word. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of diversity of opinion when it comes to what constitutes a contributing member of society these days, doesn't it? Paying it forward looks different to everybody. Because if you're a quiet and peaceable citizen who doesn't raise a voice or protest, well, maybe you're labeled as silent and violent or disinterested or you don't care. Our modern age has provided so many avenues to contribute to society by taking a stand, supporting a cause, protesting a group. People are giving their lives to fight climate change, to save animals, to gain followers, to make money, to affect change in government. There are so many good things wrapped up in all of that, but which one do you give all your time and attention and energy to because you only have so much? You know when you're in the checkout at the store and you're talking to the cashier and the cashier says, would you like to donate $2 today for... I used to think it was my Christian duty and witness to say, yes, I would love to donate that to... You know what? Make it $3. Feeling generous today. You know why? But now I'm thinking, you know what? I need to check where this money is going. Because it's no longer clear and clean. It's not just, hey, it's going to the IWK to help sick kids in Halifax. Great, take my money. No, no, no. It's going to some pretty specific, pigeonholed, segmented demographics in society that I don't always agree with supporting. So I can no longer say, yeah, take my $2. I actually have to check what this cause is for because there are so many causes out there that people want to support. I remember at my previous church, we had a Saturday where we did the Gideon's Tips program, track insertion program. And the Gideons are a great ministry. They put out a lot of great resources. And we took Gideon's Bibles and we went to the neighborhood that surrounded our church facility, like 500, 600 houses. And we had a team of people and I mapped it all out and we had color coordinated zones. And we were going to be sent out after receiving some training give out these Bibles with a little invite to our church programming on there, and then come back for lunch and talk about how it went. It did not go the way I thought it was going to go. 
it went pretty rough. And it wasn't the fault of the Gideons. Their resources are great. It's just that I think society has moved on from the door-to-door methodology. Let me tell you what happened. We were one of like four other groups going door-to-door on that Saturday morning, knocking on people's door to talk about our cause. There was a hockey team going around looking for donations. There was some other group going around collecting refundables to make some money. Uh, There were Jehovah's Witnesses going around. And then there was the Baptist church down the street going around. So when you knocked on the door and opened it, you got the impression like, again, what do you want? What do you want now? That's the impression you got. And there weren't a lot of warm conversations because there are so many things that people are inundated with that they're being asked to give their time and attention and money and service towards. So which one? do you engage in? There are so many causes to support. What's the mission that your family values enough to spend your time, money, and resources on? You don't have the time to do it all, so what are you going to focus on? John chapter 15, if you would turn there. Last scripture we're going to look at today. John chapter 15. Jesus is talking about how he is the vine, we are the branches. We can't accomplish anything apart from him. We're only going to produce good things through our relationship with him, on mission for him. Jesus said that bearing fruit is another mark of discipleship. John chapter 15 and verse 8. By this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you bear much fruit. After Jesus' death, his resurrection, He commissioned the church with the greatest mission on earth to be disciples who make disciples, go into all the world. That's our desire for our families. That's the mission of this local church, to be people who love and serve and follow Jesus, leading other people to love and serve and follow Jesus. Journey Kids and Momentum Youth are designed to partner with parents for the discipleship of those precious children. God gives the gift of his spirit through the church, so that through the church, the Spirit produces fruit in the world. Galatians 5 points it out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like to be a contributing member of God's kingdom society. This is what an active, fruit-producing faith looks like in the context of the local church. We have this beautiful opportunity as a local church to partner with families in our community so that we can mutually value the truth, engage in community, and engage in the mission. This is why your family needs the local church and why the local church needs your family. What other place in society can you join with a group of people who believe the truth that you believe, serve the God that you serve, and have a desire to speak into the life of your family to that end. My family needs you. My son and my daughter need you to confirm the truth that their mom and their dad are seeking to speak into their lives. They need you to relate to them 
in love so that they can understand what this looks like outside of mom and dad's house. They need to see you actively pursuing your faith, bringing in shoeboxes, helping Jeff with his wood, all the ways in which we are actively being Jesus' hands and feet. They need to hear how you told somebody about Jesus this week. So they know that mom and dad aren't crazy. There are other people who love and serve and value the truth of the gospel today. And my hope and my prayer is that through the context of the local church, Reese and Jade will come to understand that. So I need you in this. I want to say I need you in this more than you need me in this. We need each other. Do you remember the one another's we went through two winters ago? Encourage one another, pray for one another, bear with one another. What does this look like in the context of the local church? All right, let's close in prayer this morning as we conclude our service. Would you stand with me as we close? Stretch your legs. Get ready to go pick up your kids. Get ready to receive a Honduras night invite from one of the Honduras team members. And I want to say one more thing. I meant to say this at the start of the sermon. This probably takes us off track, but I need to say this. There are a lot of people in the room this morning. Did you look around and notice that? And the kids aren't in here at the moment. When the kids were in here during the music, there were not a lot of seats left. Here's a real practical way you can serve our community. Next Sunday, when you come in and sit down, Slide to the middle. Does that sound good? All right. I'll end you with that. That probably, uh, yeah, took your brain a different direction. But let's pray and close this time out focusing on God and his truth. God, we want to thank you so much for who you are today. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the community of believers that we get to belong to here with Faith Baptist Church in Great Village. God, we thank you for the mission that you've called us to and all the practical announcements that we heard this morning on ways that we can be Jesus' hands and feet with our time, with our energy, with our money. God, help us to be all about your business this week in our families through the ministry of your local church. There are people in this church who put a lot of time and thought and energy into ways in which we can come together and serve your kingdom. Would you help us to value that? God, I pray that families here today would take this message, take this content, take these scriptures, take the discussion guide that's out there in the lobby under the TV, and they would discuss this. They would take it further. They would talk about what this means for their family. Maybe they would make a sign and hang it on their wall in this family. We want to be disciples who make disciples. In this family, we value truth. In this family, we value community. In this family, we value engagement. God, would you help this to be the normal language on our lips with our families, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our classmates. God, help us with this. In our weakness, we need your strength. We're thankful for your grace. Thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. God, thank you for the relationship we get to have with you. And because of that, we get to have this relationship with our church family. 
Help us to value this today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.